BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, bringing the world's top experts right to you. Introducing your hosts, Matt Bodner and Austin Fable. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode... We bring back the legendary FBI expert, Joe Navarro, to distill a lifetime of spy hunting experience into the five principles that exceptional and outstanding individuals live by. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting, and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word smarter. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we shared the lessons from astronaut Scott Kelly's amazing career what it took to become an astronaut, surviving NASA's grueling training, and the powerful experience of being in outer space. Now for our interview with Joe. Before he became internationally recognized as one of the world's foremost experts on body language, Joe Navarro was an eight-year-old refugee fleeing communist-controlled Cuba. In America, as a non-English speaker, he survived by observing others, eventually going on to lead a career as an FBI special agent studying and applying the science of nonverbal communication. Navarro eventually went on to spend a quarter century with the FBI, pursuing spies and other dangerous criminals across the globe. In his line of work, successful leadership was quite literally a matter of life and death. Now, he's collected his hard-earned lessons in Be Exceptional, distilling a lifetime of spy-catching experience into five principles that outstanding individuals live by. Joe, welcome back to the Science of Success. Matt, it's great to be back here with you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I really enjoyed our first conversation, and I'm super excited to dig into some of the themes and ideas from Be Exceptional, your latest work. You know, one of the things that really resonated with me from that is this broader theme, which in many ways is is one of the fundamental questions that we ask on the science of success, and that's guided much of my own self-directed learning over the last decade or more is this idea of how do we truly set ourselves apart? How do we truly become somebody who can be influential, can be exceptional, can create something meaningful in the world? And so to me, you take a hard look at that question in the book, and I'd be curious, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, as always, Matt, you ask very profound questions. And that is, what is it that really matters? You know, we can look at uh, Carl Sagan, And his great statement, which I'm going to summarize here, Carl Sagan, the great cosmologist, said, who are we? 
what are we? We're not who we think we are. In the end, he said, all we are is the sum total of our influence on others. And it goes directly to your question. The people that listen to your program, listen to your program because they know that there's always something to work on. There's something always that they can be doing better, that somehow there are important things that need to be done and how do we achieve them? And that's the essence of what I was looking at when I began the research for this book, Be Exceptional. I had spent about eight years doing research for another book, which had to deal with really the people that were very problematic. You know, the book, Dangerous Personalities. But in doing research for that book, and at the end of about a 10-year span, and I had done hundreds of interviews, there was a theme that kept popping up that set extraordinary people apart, that really you could say, and it didn't matter if they were a farmer, a laborer, a mother at home, or a father at home, or a business person, that made them exceptional. And they were exceptional because of the profound and positive influence that they had on others. And as I looked at that, and I said, you know, this is the quintessence of what really matters, is what is our net effect on others? And those that are exceptional had such a positive effect on others, whether it would be somebody in a village or in a town or just in a small working group. And I said, I want to encapsulate that. I want to be able to articulate for those who are interested, what does it really take to be exceptional? And so that's what the book is about. And it's a labor of love. I mean, I've, I've spent, I guess now going on 12 years working on it. So I'm glad I get to uh, share that with you today, Matt. Well, it's funny. Carl Sagan is one of my all-time favorite thinkers and writers. And I love that definition of who we are. And I also really like that definition of success, being exceptional, as you put it. It's having a profound positive impact on others. It's, it's so simple and yet it's really powerful. Well, think about it. You know, you ask most people, you know, as you know, I give seminars all over the world. And except, well, even this year, I mean, we were doing it online, but often a question that I ask, and it's a rhetorical question. I say, who wants to be average? Right. And I'm looking around. Does anybody raise their hand? I've yet to maybe every once in a while, somebody will raise it just because they want to say, you know, I've got enough stress in my life. I don't need to do anything more. But when you ask people, who wants to be, just be average? And I think most people don't. We love excellence in athletes. We love excellence in artists. We love excellence in those that care for our children and teach our children and so forth. And then when I say, OK, so nobody here wants to be average. Who wants to be exceptional? Everybody raises their hand. So now comes the big question. How do you do that? How do you become exceptional? Because if you tell me you're going to work hard or harder, that doesn't cut it. If you tell me you're going to, you know, buy more property or another vehicle, that's not being exceptional. You know, being exceptional is truly having the ability to positively influence others and they feel better for having known you, associating with you, and just being in your presence. And as you look around and ask yourself, wow, how many people fulfill that? And you realize, oh boy, that's a tough question. That is a really tough question. And yet we know that we're capable of doing that. And not just for others, but for ourselves. I really like every piece of that statement. It's a great filter for thinking about not only your current activities, but also your goals and aspirations. Do they, do they check the box or where do they land on the spectrum of profundity? Are they having a positive or negative impact? How much influence are you exerting? And yeah. even, I mean, going all the way back to books like Man's Search for Meaning, 
the idea of self-transcendence, of focusing on others, all of those things together are such a great recipe for being exceptional. And as you said, in any field, any endeavor, it doesn't matter what it is. Well stated, Matt. And even at a personal level, one has to ask, you know, is this it? Is this as good as I can be or is there more? And one of the things that I found that it didn't matter where you came from, it didn't matter what you had suffered in life or any number of things that we are always capable of doing just a little bit more or even a lot more. And, you know, I think of, you know, that personal quest that you were talking about. And I think of the work of Joseph Campbell. And, you know, he came under some criticism years later because he said, you know, follow your bliss. And people misunderstood that. Joseph Campbell didn't say, oh, you know, you just wake up one morning, have a cup of coffee and follow your bliss. That's not what he was talking about. Joseph Campbell was talking about and what this book is about, this mastery of self that you can create an apprenticeship program for yourself so that you can achieve your goals and your objectives. So you can have that bliss. It's not going to be handed to you, but you can go and through mentorships, you can, you know, looking online on YouTube, talking to people, studying, you can fulfill those things that you seek for yourself, but you have to pay a price. And that price is that apprenticeship that Benjamin Franklin paid, that Thomas Edison paid, that any numbers, the Wright brothers paid. You know, we owe aviation to two guys that owned a bicycle shop. Think about that. But they created an apprenticeship program where they studied aeronautics on their own. They created a wind tunnel on their own so they could test things. They created the scaffolding that then became the airline industry. But they had a dream. They had a passion. They had that bliss. They mastered themselves. And in mastering themselves, then they could master something else, which was power-directed flight. Edison did the same thing. Benjamin Franklin did the same thing. Jane Goodall, you know, here's she's a young woman, 22 years old, goes out in the jungle, doesn't know a thing about living and observing the wild. And she becomes the greatest primatologist of her time. And she did that through self-mastery, through creating this apprenticeship of self And so, you know, when I study and I look at people around the world and whether you are, you know, just taking care of a flock of sheep or taking care of a school full of children, that person becomes exceptional when they go out of the way to create that program for themselves so that they can be the best that they can be. Not the best that they've been told, not the best that they think, but the best that they can be. And that's what really sets the exceptional apart. I find it so interesting that you opened that with a a quote from Joseph Campbell. I have his book, Power of Myth and Cosmos by Carl Sagan sitting right next to each other in one of my favorite nooks on my bookshelf. And they're both two fantastic thinkers about the human experience broadly. But coming back to that specific lesson, this idea of the pillar of self-mastery, tell me a little bit more about that being really one of the first steps towards living a more exceptional life. Well, I, you know, for me, it was one of these things where I myself found myself at, at a great disadvantage. You know, I came to this country as a refugee. I didn't speak English. I went to a school where I think the smallest class had 54 students. And, you know, there was just 
there were things that were stacked against me, but you know, it, it wasn't the kind of challenge that would aggravate me. It was the kind of thing where I said to myself, okay, what did other people do? You know, when I looked at the life of Thomas Edison as a child, I was fascinated. Here's a guy who learned to operate the telegraph at the age of 12. He left school, I think, in the sixth or seventh grade. And yet he, you know, he had 1,100 patents when he passed away. And what I learned was, is you can do a lot on your own. And so for me, I began the study of body language and nonverbal communication, for, which is principally what I'm known for, at a very early age. And I built on that. And what schools did not teach me, I developed on my own. You know, there were no body language classes in 1971. So I went out and read everything that I could from anthropologists, from sociologists, from ethnographers, from historians. And I use that to create this apprenticeship program for myself. And I didn't care that there wasn't a college degree for this. This is what I wanted to study, and I did. And that scaffolding, that scaffolding prepared me for a career in the FBI. But, you know, it wasn't just that, because part of the exceptional experience is that you have to have mastery over yourself. And that means you have to make sacrifices. You, you know, when other people are out having a good time and drinking, you may have to do that extra work. There are things that you have to take control over. You cannot have influence over others if you have no mastery over yourself. And that doesn't mean you're perfect. None of these individuals that I've mentioned were perfect. Everyone has flaws. But you have to have a certain amount of mastery over that so that then you can exert influence on others. And we gravitate. We gravitate towards people who have that mastery of self. You know, we praise that person. Boy, they've really got their act together. You know, I'm looking at these Olympic athletes, um, Simone Bile, and I'm thinking, I live in a lifetime where here's this little girl and this little girl defies the laws of physics. And I'm thinking, talk about achieving mastery over self. This isn't just about physicality. This is about being mentally prepared to go out there every day and do what you need to do to become the world's greatest gymnast. You know, I'm not going to be the world's greatest gymnast. I'm not going to be the world's greatest runner. And every one of us has a realm of things that we are able to have mastery over, however humble that is. But if we don't have that mastery of self, we can never achieve that full potential. And at the same time, we can never be influential if we don't have that mastery of self. I really like this concept that you can't have influence over others if you can't master yourself first. You're exactly right. And, you know, people in clubs, you know, if you're an athlete, when you've got a coach or you've got a captain in the military or you've got a, a manager that has emotional issues, you know, you lose respect. People don't respect you. People don't appreciate you. People sense that, you know, why am I beholden to you if you don't have your act together? And that happens every day, every day. I'm curious if we're bought in on the concept of self-mastery, how do you think about, it's almost to me the same analogy of someone who knows that they should eat healthy or knows that they should work out. You know that you should have self-mastery and yet struggle struggle with it for some reason. How do you think about really bringing that into your life and, and, and making it a principle that you live by? Yeah, great question. And that's the part of the equation that I wanted to explore is what can we do? 
what can we do to create that self-mastery? And as you go through the book, especially that first section on, on mastery, it's about the things that need to be addressed first, that self, you know, having that conversation, where am I, where am I going? What are the habits that I need to change? What needs to be taken out of my life and what needs to be embraced? And incrementally, you know, I talk about myelinating. So myelinating is literally, well, not literally, figuratively, the super wrapping of those connections in the brain so that we develop better practices and in developing better practices, they become faster and more. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Sturdy and they become robust. And we can change, you know, I talk about when I first entered the bureau and uh, the first question, the firearms, they said, okay, who here, you know, it was small class, 21 of us. And uh, they said, uh, who here has firearms training? And, uh, you know, there was like five of us that had been previously police officers or in the military. And they said, okay, you guys step over here. And I thought, oh, great. You know, we've got to jump on everybody else. And then they took us aside and said, not so fast, gang. We're going to teach you how to do it right from the very beginning, because all of you have learned very bad habits. And boy, did we ever. And in fact, it was the people that had never been exposed to a weapon that actually learned to shoot best because they were taught the best practices from the beginning. And they myelinated that they strengthen those synaptic connections. And so for us that had learned all sorts of junk, we had to get rid of that and learn how to shoot all over again. And so in the book, I talk about how we can take small incremental steps each day to change our lives for the better and to focus on those things that are important. So it's not just theoretical. There's actually guidelines in the book to pursue, to help you to change, to be able to work on your own mind, to expand that mind so that your mind is more plastic, both to experience and to novelty but also to be honest with yourself and be able to say what's lacking and what needs to be addressed and how do we do that now. The concept of myelination, I love bringing it to that and taking it all the way back to the neuroscience and really the fundamental brain structure of how habits are fundamentally formed. It's a great way to, to make the notion of self-mastery and really all of these tools extremely practical. Yeah. You know, you, I think it's efficacious to look at the underpinnings and say, you know, I can go to the pool and I can see children who pour their heart into swimming, but they're not swimming properly. They are hyper rotating. They're, they're yawing down the lane. Their head comes too high out of the water. Their arms are just being thrown in front. And you say, well, what if they had coaching and the coach came in and said, look, you know, that stroke, you have to reach far in front of you and then begin to teach them properly. Sometimes we have a good coach and sometimes we don't. But if we have an honest conversation with ourselves and say, what can I work on and who can I go to? It is so much easier nowadays to find someone to assist you, to mentor you. There's so many places that we can go to to get information. And the ease of that compared to what it was like at the turn of the last century is significant. But we have to realize that we can create bad habits and we can actually reinforce those bad habits, but breaking them, we have to do that with effort and with dedication. And nothing is easy. 
you know, nothing is easy, but, but you have to begin somewhere and you have to begin now. And I always say, you know, if changing completely is too difficult, then begin to change by degrees. And I think that's always useful because then that prepares you for the next phase which exceptional people share, and that is the ability to observe the needs, wants, desires of others, but more importantly, perhaps, is also to be able to assess what their fears and concerns are. And that's what really sets exceptional people apart, that ability to empathize and to observe what is needed at that moment. It's funny that you included observation as one of the major pillars of exceptional achievement. To me, it's such a vital skill and, and yet one that I feel like is chronically underrated. You said it beautifully, chronically underrated, chronically unappreciated, and yet you cannot innovate if you can't observe. If you don't have the ability to dissect something and say, wow, you know, something's missing here or something is needed or here's an opportunity, you're going to be left behind. If you cannot read the team that you're working with, if you can't observe that someone is struggling or that they, in fact, may be too cautious or fearful or they have other interests, you're missing out on this information, which may be invaluable to communicate with them, to empathize with them, to establish some sort of relationship. You know, people talk all the time about establishing rapport. Establishing rapport is no mystery. You know, don't complicate it. It's just psychological comfort. But how do you establish that if you can't read each other? You know, and so we devote a lot of attention in the book to how to, what is important? How do you read others? How do you expand that ability to observe fully, you know, from left to right, not just what's in front of you, to be able to assess, for instance, you know, we run into each other. What is the perfect distance for me to stand in relation to you, Matt? Because you may feel comfortable with someone at four feet. Somebody else may prefer somebody somewhat further apart. Someone may prefer closer. But if we don't have the ability to observe that, what we're doing then is minimizing face time. You can't influence people if there's psychological discomfort. If every time we meet, you feel uncomfortable because, boy, that Navarro, he stands too close to me, it's not going to work out. You're never going to have that positive influence. And so even at this minute level of spatial distancing, you know, what are my preferences for talking to you and communicating with you and engaging you? That's what sets exceptional people apart is that they have the ability to see the child and they sit down with the child and they talk to them. And the next minute they stand up and they're talking to the CEO of a company and they can go from one setting to the other and they can assess and transform their communication to what is needed in the moment. That is the purview of the exceptional, the average cannot achieve that. It's such a fundamental, fundamentally simple idea that if you can't observe and understand either a situation or an individual or a problem, then you can't formulate a real solution to it. And yet the observation step frequently gets completely missed or overlooked. And it always, I find it so fascinating that we look at endeavors like the FBI is a perfect example, or the military, where you don't really have a margin for error or room for failure, you see observation be really prioritized. And those crucibles are fascinating places to pull performance lessons from. Yeah. I mean, think about it. You know, the, what made Alexander the Great so fantastic was his ability to observe what are the troops in front of me doing? 
Where are they moving? Where are their horses? Where are the chariots? The ability to observe. But think about, you know, something like the, the fellow that the Swiss gentleman that discovered Velcro. You know, this stuff, 1941, the middle of a war, and, you know, this stuff is sticking to his socks, and he's looking at it under a microscope, and he's saying, you know, these burrs, you know, they kind of have this hooked thing about them, and they stick to everything. And he says, yeah, I can replicate this. Takes him 10 years, but he, in essence, replicated. But, you know, observation, (laughs) you know, also incorporates curiosity, and, and, you know, in the book, I talk about how this the concept of benign curiosity can open up worlds to you. I've had people open up their houses, tell me things that I would have never known if I hadn't been observant, if I hadn't exercised the concept of benign curiosity, of exploring further, of of trying to understand. You cannot. Here's the other thing, Matt. You can't be empathetic if you're not observing. And observing isn't looking. Looking is what your mother and father taught you. Look left, look right before you cross the street. Observing is decoding everything that is in front of you that can be perceived. And schools do not teach you to observe until you are in graduate school. And even then, it's only limited. And that's a huge problem. As you said earlier, it is an undervalued skill, and yet you cannot be exceptional unless you are a terrific observer. That distinction between looking and observing is is really important. And the word decode is a great way to really frame that in better context so that you can understand it's not just about seeing what's there, but really starting to truly formulate an an understanding of, of what it is and why it's the case. Well, think about, you know, how many business meetings we've been to, Matt, and you walk into a room, there's 12 people gathered there, and somebody just jumps right into the meeting. And without looking around and noticing that two people are over here whispering to each other, one of is over there rubbing their forehead, concerned about something. Another one is texting, you know, just you know, burning the keys, as we say, uh, communicating with someone. And they don't realize that (laughs) there are things going on that perhaps need to be attended to first before we jump into the meeting. And then when the meeting's over, people come away and they feel like, well, you know, I wasn't listened to and so forth. The number one complaint I hear, you know, I wasn't listened to. It wasn't just that you weren't listened to. It was that somebody looked at you, but they didn't observe you. And that is one of the biggest problems of business today. And there's a cure for that. But it takes a little bit of effort to develop that observational skill, not just being able to see what's in front of you. I want to jump around a little bit because one of the other pillars that you touched on earlier that I find to be really fascinating is this notion of psychological comfort. I want to make sure we explore that a little bit. So tell me, you touched on it earlier, tell me what that is and why it's so critical to being exceptional. It's absolutely critical and it's foundational. We humans thrive with psychological comfort. Whether we're being massaged, whether the baby is being uh, touched, whether we hug, we humans don't seek perfection. We never have. What we do seek is psychological comfort. And whoever provides psychological comfort, again, is going to be the soonest winner. Because in the end, you know, yes, I'd love for my mom to give me a hug. But you know what? If she's not available, then maybe a teddy bear. And the teddy bear's not available, then maybe a, you know, a dirty blanket. But in the end, what we seek is psychological comfort. You see two gas stations, uh, different corners, and one is higher priced. But people still go to that one. And, but they go there, even though it's higher priced, because they have more lighting. And people seek psychological comfort. So even though they're paying more money, they will go to the one that has more light than the one that is maybe darker. 
And if you understand that, if you understand that, you know, it's down to things like tone of voice, setting, that anything that contributes to psychological comfort, that spatial difference we talked about, that if I prefer coffee, you know, please don't offer me tea. It's just not going to be the same thing. That anytime we can meet or exceed the expectations and provide that psychological comfort that we're going to win. I, you know, in the book I talk about, we were at the uh, Ritz Carlton in Sarasota. I was uh, doing a, a little training there and I'm talking to the manager and he looks over my shoulder and he rushes towards the elevator and I'm going like, okay. <laughs> and there's a couple standing there and they had just glanced about and uh, he intercepted them and then silently he walks them down the hall and walks them out towards the pool. And I, and I said, what was that about? And he said this. He said, if they, you know, obviously they're looking for how to get to the pool. If they have to go to the front desk to ask for help, then I have failed. We have failed. The fact that I observe what their needs are, that they're experiencing some sort of psychological discomfort, and that by going to them directly, not wasting their time, and providing that psychological comfort, what is that? The directions. They're going to come back. They're going to be appreciative. They're going to like this establishment. And that's the essence of it is that if we understand that humans work on this very simple concept that we want psychological comfort and that it's, it may be some simple as what preferences we have, that that's what is, that's what can really set us apart but achieving that is what I found that's I find so many people have difficulty with because they think about protocol or they think about established practices or they think about the routine that maybe they're used to. And they're not thinking about what would provide psychological comfort to this person at this moment. And if you use that as your guide, and obviously there's a lot of examples you're going to have people gravitate towards you because you're providing that which very few people provide them. The example of going to a more expensive gas station just because it has better lighting, that's a really succinct way of encapsulating this concept. And I can see it even looking at my own behavior where I will spend more money for something just because I know that I'm comfortable with that thing, even though I probably could get it or something just as good or maybe even better, but I'm not comfortable with whatever that object is or item or service or whatever. It's so interesting and a very simple way of thinking about what's a really powerful concept. It's a powerful concept. There is a lot of simplicity to it, but the execution of it is what I find is troubling for a lot of people because they don't realize the importance of it. I think going forward, as we look at, well, what's the new standard into the future? What, what is the new standard? And the new standard has changed. It, the new standard, it's about acting quickly, acting pro-socially. Well, to do that, you've got to be able to observe. You've got to have people that have mastery over themselves, but then they have to be able to, you know, communicate effectively, but also they can provide that psychological uh, comfort. And that is the new standard. And that's how you differentiate yourself in the 21st century when everybody else has the same software. Everybody has Word and Excel and, and the, the same apps. But how do you differentiate yourself? That is a personal thing. That is, is one that you have to tackle yourself. And that's what the, really the book is about. One thing I want to clarify and, and just make sure I understand better is the notion of psychological comfort is primarily around exceptional people are able to create that for others 
not necessarily to create it for themselves? Or, or do I misunderstand that? Well, I think the best way to look at psychological comfort is this. We all have personal preferences. I remember when at a very young age, I saw how my mother and, and grandmother and father would try to make other children comfortable, even though at times they were poorer than I was, than we were. And the sole purpose of that was to make them feel comfortable into coming into our home, that anybody was welcome. So I, you know, we could say, well, when we do good things for other people at a biological level, we know about oxytocin, we know about serotonin, we know about that feedback that we're going to feel good from doing that. But we're also creating an environment that is welcoming, that is loving and so forth. And so my philosophy is, you know, I use these powers of observation to see what is needed in the moment for others principally, but also what I may need. I mean, it's no different than saying, you know what, I've been in the desert, I need water, I'm thirsty. Yeah, you need that. That creates, in essence, psychological uh, comfort because your biology is now in a state of homeostasis. But we go beyond ourselves when we look for the interests of others. And when we look at exceptional people, they really have that ability. And sometimes it's just being courteous and sometimes it's just being kind or giving a word of encouragement when it's needed or validating, validating what someone is going through. Maybe that's all that it takes. And there's many examples of that. But that's the magic of psychological comfort is that it's just a little bit, but the return on investment is, uh, is huge. Another one of the core pillars that we haven't really touched on yet, but to me is so vitally important is action. It's simple and yet really one of the biggest differentiators between people who are exceptional and, and people who want to be exceptional. Tell me a little bit about how that ties everything together. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the ability to act quickly, but act prosocially is really key to creating psychological comfort so that our actions are maybe they have to be measured. So, you know, what do I do in this situation? What if confronted with this or with that? But if we keep in mind that the faster that we show we care by our actions, that we show how much we care by how quickly we act, that we show how ethical we are by how pro-social how beneficial it is for others. You know, one of the things that I talk about is that when I looked at everybody that won a Medal of Honor, right, what they call the Congressional Medal of Honor, you know, none of these people grew up to be a hero. They became heroes because they cared. They became heroes because they cared and took immediate action. So, you know, when we look at these individuals and I say, well, they did heroic acts. Well, let's dig deep. They did heroic acts because they observed there was a need. They took immediate action that was pro-social for the benefit of others. And every day we have the opportunity to do things for others, but it's how quickly we do it. How efficiently. I'll give you an example for business. How many times have you gone to a, an important meeting and everybody tells you, you know, you know how great you are, how much you're appreciated. But, you know, you got to go through security. Then you got to go through receptionist. Then you got to go through the assistant. And then they walk you down a hallway and then you're finally in the front door. Now, just think about that for a minute. Versus. They, somebody comes downstairs and meets you at curbside and how you would feel walking away from that and going, wow, wow, this is some organization. They're meeting me at curbside. That's how much they care. 
the sentiments that you take away, the positivity, the the psychological comfort of not having to go through security, receptionist, the first assistant, and then trying to find the hallway. It's just epic. And yet people expect others to respond to average on a daily basis and somehow draw some other inference from that. When if they change their actions, going downstairs and meeting that person that you claim is so special and meeting them at curbside, now you're creating this wave of psychological comfort and caring and action that is both observable and becomes part of what that person retains for the rest of their life, potentially. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. And we explore in the book how we decide how to take action and when and where and, and what about ethical issues. So I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. That example of, of meeting somebody at the curb is such a simple little thing. And yet all of those little actions are the exact kinds of things that add up to an exceptional life, an exceptional achievement. I'm curious for someone who's been listening to this conversation and, and wants to start to take action, to put some of these ideas into practice and, and wants to be exceptional, what would the first action step be that you would have them take? Great question. I, I think, you know, personally, I would have that conversation with myself and say, okay, Joe, what's lacking? All right. You know, do, do I let pressures get to me? Do I let emails get to me? Do I let social media get to me? How undisciplined is my life? I had to, you know, when I retired, I just wanted to, you know, maybe loaf about a little bit, but something in me said, no, you got books to write, buddy. And writing, you're going to have to dedicate yourself to that. So I looked at what other writers said, you know, and, you know, they said, well, you know, you need to devote three or four hours a day every day to writing. Well, if that's what it takes to become a writer, then that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, now 14 books later, I'm glad that I listened to that little voice. You know, are there models out there? Whose life do I want to model? There are plenty of examples, men and women, who achieve extraordinary things. And I say, if I could draw nearer to what half of what they are and what they do, there are models out there that we can do. Is there more that I can read? There's always more that we can read, but don't always read the same thing. I, I talk to people that, you know, read all the time in this genre or that genre. You know, this year I'm reading about China and early explorers. Next year I'm going to be reading about the Byzantine period. Expand. Last year I was reading about animals and animal intelligence. Expand the areas of interest because you never know how that will affect your ability to observe and to understand and empathize. Learn to communicate more effectively both verbally and non-verbally. Think for a minute. This is one of the big points in the book is how can we influence others non-verbally? Something so simple as when we point at an object, nobody likes to be pointed at. We don't even like it when we point at a chair. And yet, if we do it with an open palm, people are more receptive to that. Now, we haven't had enough time to talk about communication. But how can I improve my communication? How can I improve? You know, Wittgenstein said, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. Now, think about that. What words don't I know that could help me to understand the world around me? And you expand your vocabulary. You expand your ability to observe. Are there ways to communicate with greater respect, with greater civility? All these things are things that we can work on. And it's not going to all happen in one day, but you begin each day with something. And gradually, that myelination process that we talked about begins to take hold. 
And now nothing takes you away from that morning run. Nothing takes you away from sitting down with my journal and writing my thoughts or my observations. And in time, you know, what we do each day does become who we are, but we've got to start somewhere. And hopefully the book and the guidance in the book, which comes from real life individuals, can help you to become a better version of yourself and have that influence that exceptional people do have. Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this wisdom. Once again, a a fantastic conversation, touching on some of my favorite thinkers and ideas and really exploring some of the fundamental themes of what we can do to become exceptional. Well, it's my pleasure, Matt. What you do for all of us, sharing knowledge is a real tribute to yourself. And I thank you for this opportunity. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 